we are. All right. Good morning. Happy Friday. It's grief chat time. It is grief chat time. I already put stuff on. Uh, I sort of advertised it earlier and I saw that. I managed to get it put together earlier last and night. And you, I mean, like, wow, Jill, you were just on, on top of it. And you know, isn't that just like life? Some days you're a little more on top of it than other days. Right. I know it. I know it. Um, I wanted to bring up a fascinating article. Of yeah. course, I don't have it with me but i'll 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 post it somewhere along the line it has to do with there's a new tv show that i haven't watched yet it's it's uh called wandavision i haven't seen it okay and it has to do with the law i i think i'm saying this correctly it has to do with the death of one of the avengers from the Ooh. avengers movies and in this article, it talks about the grief and the expression of grief from, I don't want to give it all away, but uh, about that particular Avenger. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's in, are, are you part of, and I'll mention, um, there's an association that I still belong to. Jill, do you still belong to Association for Deaf Education and Counseling? ADEF? I did not pay my views, but I am part. Okay, so in their recent newsletter, one, I will send the newsletter to you, Jill. Yeah. And then the other part is um, I'll, I'll post from there because someone wrote about this superheroes and I'm sorry I'm not giving enough information I just briefly got to it yesterday and it just sort of uh we always think about living people and when they die what about fictional characters or um yeah what about fictional characters right how do you, and to go back remember in MASH that's the one I was just talking about. When, when Colonel um, Henry Blake died and they were in the operating room, so they still had to function. And there was this, I got goosebumps just re thinking about the scene where they had to, they just, paused just and i mean and radar came, radar came in who was like uh just devastated right and, in and read it like you know very matter of factly and you saw like a i think a tear for margaret Houlihan, who's supposed to be this real stoic person and then you saw that I felt like anger in Hawkeye's fight face. And he and dropped the he dropped the instruments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It just and yet they knew they had to compartmentalize that just to go on. And 
how many people after one a uh, a shocking traumatic death right so close just i mean it is you are punched in the gut yep and yet you're in the middle of something and how do you continue i want to give one more example cuz i keep replaying this maybe because of politics and stuff I don't know who else remembers when uh, Bush was reading to children, reading to children. And he, it's like his brain was in two places at once as someone whispered in his ear. I don't even know exactly what they whispered, but two things. One, we're under attack. Mm-hmm. And two, the Twin Towers in New York were just, and yet he has to keep a face being so aware of his surroundings with these children. I cannot imagine what that man felt for our country at that point. And I, I hope our listeners, if if one, the president of the United States, while speaking to children, had to get a sickening loss. Right. Ugh, I can't even imagine. I cannot imagine. Yep. And we've seen that before. We'll see it again. It's It makes it human for all of us. It makes us human. Right. Because we all share that. That really happened. And, you know, at times of, uh, I've been, as I've been reading more about COVID grief and et cetera, et cetera. And I think I told you just recently, one of my um, uh, good friends died and her daughter wrote something on Facebook, how because of COVID, and I think one of the articles I read also said all deaths now are a COVID death because you cannot see people you can't be with them while they're in the dying process so many many more are getting that hit in the gut feeling and would you agree Jill I would and it doesn't matter what someone dies from can you hear me I'm getting feedback like crazy I can hear you fine. Okay, okay. So what I'm seeing in all the work that I'm doing is it doesn't matter what someone dies from in sense of what's going to happen after because everybody has to wait. Everybody's loved ones wait too long in mortuaries. Everybody's families have to have distanced funerals if they have anything at all. Nobody goes to the hospital, gets to have anyone with them for the most part. It's the same unwitnessed death for everybody. Yes. And it's equally as terrible for everybody. Yes. And we're now also seeing people refusing to go to the hospital. They'd rather and die at home. They'd rather die at home, which makes it harder for the family 
at home to some degree, because then there's that, should we have forced them? Should we not? There's a lot of second guessing that goes on after a death. And it doesn't matter how the death occurs. They're second guessing. Even if it's, we know it's coming, we're at home, it's peaceful hospices here. There's some second guessing that occurs. That's part of working through the grief process. Right, right. Always. My my kitty came up to... So, We've been calling those weighted blankets. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. And and they're good for you. They're good for you. Some days I forget. Um, I know this is off topic, but I I just need my weighted blanket right here, rather than going upstairs putting on my CPAP. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a little less comfy. So, you know. And, and so for our listeners, I'm, I, I just, a lot of forgiveness of self. Um, I am, I'm going to, I'm going to give an example because I, I, I just came from um, another, a Zoom presentation where the person gave such a, uh, the person is a professor at a university and they forgot, not forgot, I mean, it just got away, hosting this week's lecture. Oops. Right? <laughs> and she said, oops, you know, I've had so much on my mind. I've had so much to do. I'm going to forgive myself. So she's saying to everybody. And so this week, she will post a little video that says, so how'd you like the lecture this week? I'm sorry. <laughs> you know? But why I'm saying this is I'm going to give this example of a little bit of guilt after um, after uh, walking uh, Charlie, this is Oscar, walking Charlie to the Rainbow Bridge. Yeah. And the guilt was, you know, and, and this is real common, no matter pre-COVID, people have this guilt not just from dying at home, dying, you ask yourself a lot of questions. So the first one was, should I have gone to the doctor sooner? Would it have made a difference? Yep. In in life. The next one is, while I'm scooping out the cat box, I always thought the small pea clumps was this guy because he had had some surgery. But I was wrong. The small pea clumps were the other one that never had anything. And I'm like, what? What? So one, he wasn't drinking enough water anyway. Then there was more, you know, and then I go, what should I have done differently? How should I know? How should I have known? What should I have known? And, you know, sometimes things are just, they are. Right. And you don't make any any sense of it. So part of the grief integration process is it just, there's no sense. I don't know why. And then you live with that, I don't know why. And you come to terms with it and you work it through. That's right. That's right. And you get to that point that it's just sometimes things happen. 
and they're out of our control. And then you find other places where you could bring in some control to the grief process right. so that you're not having that sense of complete lack of control surrounding you, which is really hard for grievers because there's it's, nothing that losing control is having someone you love die. Right. You can't stop it. And then you feel out of control when any portion of expression pops out before you have any control. Um, someone <laughs> called me this week and we were talking and this person uh, sort of let loose on somebody else. And um, because they had shoved, because they had to deal with in the moment so much, they had to compartmentalize like that scene from MASH when they still have to deal with stuff, right? They right. still have to wait <clears throat> on the open bodies. So I I took that example of how they unloaded on someone and I said, well, and I like to exaggerate, at least you didn't punch them. <laughs> you know, and I'm changing a lot of the facts in case anybody is watching. But, you know, at least you did not go to jail. Right. That's the main goal. You've got that much control. You have that much control. And then I gave suggestions because now this person that had come into their space is a trigger. And I said, for now, and always write for now, say, I'm taking care of such and such, and um, I'll talk to you later, or I'm not able to talk with you in person for now. Right. For now. Write for now, because it's not forever. So write down for now. There's and room for change. There's room for change if you write for now. So many times, I think, in grieving, people don't understand. I know there's many times I didn't in the past. Uh, people's black and white thinking. That's why you wrote your book, right? Because there's all this unsaid, but comes out of your mouth anyway, un, these unwritten rules of how you're supposed to grieve as a widow because it's supposed to go this way and yeah. you don't dare color it with purple it is black and white no smudging no smudging <laughs> right and the funny thing is when you bring stuff like that up to any griever and say so what are the things that you know about grief tell me what you know how grief is supposed to be mm -hmm. everyone knows some of these facts that are just not true. I just finished teaching a course, a three-day course for um, therapists on uh, prenatal and infant loss. And one of the number one facts for couples who've lost a pregnancy or a child is you have a 60% chance of a divorce after this. That's absolute bunk. It's complete bunk. It was made oh. up out of whole cloth in 1977 by a mom who lost a child and wrote a book 
but she had some street cred because she had some uh, history in her prior career. And so she just pulled this fact out of the air. And it was the only fact out there and it just got repeated and repeated and re and it's still being repeated. And it's to this not day, NICU true. nurses are taught that in their classes. It's There's nothing to support it. There's been wow. research after research. The current research is that there's a divorce rate of about 18% after the loss of a child. And a good portion of those, when they're interviewed, will say it had nothing to do with the child's death or the loss of their pregnancy. Mm -hmm. They were already on the rocks. They already wow. didn't communicate well. It just magnified it. Mm -hmm. So we have all these facts we know about grief and loss. And some of them are just myths that get shared for so many years that all of a sudden they're facts. Right. It's sort of like you always have to cut the ends off a ham when you put it in the, in, in a piece. Yeah. <laughs> what? You never do that. You lose all the good stuff. And finally, someone's in. It was handed down for ages, and they said, "Why do you keep doing that after right, all right. those ages?" Because that's what our great grandparents did. Right. What? My great grandparents ate. My great grandparents ate lutefisk. That doesn't mean I'm going to. That stuff is vicious. <laughs> my grandmother had a fit when she found out I put garlic powder or garlic salt in chicken soup she goes no so i i just imagine when right? i get in there hey grandma tilly how's that rollover going for you <laughs> right we just need to if if we can hear when we hear someone giving us myths that they are believing mm -hmm. If we can all just gently say, let's let's just double check that. Let's let's look and see what the the real research says. Because there's a lot of research out there, folks, about grief. And some of it's really well grounded and has scientific method behind of it, behind it, and some of it not so much. In my humor studies, and I and I like to uh when when I'm presenting, I like to say there's studies and there's studies. And sometimes someone, so one of the humor myths is um, that laughing hard for uh, one minute equals 10 minutes of, uh, I guess, uh, rowing or uh, like rowing. Like when you can't work. Well, laughing hard is equal to 10 minutes of running, whatever the person said. Here's where it started. Uh, Dr. William Fry was called by a reporter, and the reporter said, so how does this work on your cardiovascular system, you know, forceful laughter? He said, I don't know. I'll do a little research. I'll get back to you. So what Bill Fry did is he laughed hard for one minute and clocked his pulse rate, right? And then he worked on, I think it was a rowing machine, because this was the 60s, and 
he got he figured out how many minutes on the rowing machine equaled getting the heart rate up to that. So he said it was a small study. <laughs> <laughs> a one, n equals one. A one, and you know now people are going to know my secrets. Well, let me let me do a little research for you. <laughs> so when you when and this applies to grieving when you say whatever other weirdo facts come out was that a study study a good study is when you can have like what they're doing with uh, moderna and pfizer mm -hmm. to test this out maybe they have a thousand or two thousand or three thousand if you have there's a certain word that only people who know statistics and all those kind of studies um, like if it's a collective of like Helsinki did uh, 500 and those people did 200 and Russia did this and Cincinnati, Ohio threw in another hundred, you know, it's a collective study. That's a good study. Right. You know, across the board, but you know, some stuff they just, you know, a study of eight people. Not so much. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was putting together, I'm doing a presentation at AATH um, with Deb Price in April. Um, and so she's doing her part on the things you got to do to get ready before you die. All, all the documents, all the stuff. She wrote a little, great little book about it. And I am doing one to join with that on how to take care of intimate partners as they're preparing to lose one of them and the grief process. And so it's about intimacy loss. And there's about this much research on intimacy loss, which is where I got started on it. So I've done some of my own research, which is entirely just survey based. It is international because I have international peeps. N equals maybe 125 to 160, depending on which population. And I looked at intimate partners who were in the process of losing, intimate partners who've lost a partner, grief therapists, and hospice staff. And what's interesting is when I mentioned the outcome of that study, even to Deb, when I said, yeah, what I found was not a single hospice person anywhere ever said that they would be comfortable talking to an intimate couple about how to maintain intimacy during the loss process. How do you make sure that if nothing else, you take the two beds and you put them together and zip tie them so that even if someone needs to be in a hospital bed, the other person can be next to them and they can still right. join together as they should right. They're, and take away the caregiver patient and make them back into a couple to foster right. that intimacy. And she said, oh my God, I have to apologize. I did hospice for years. I never brought that up. And so even though it's a small study, every time I bring it up, I get a, a, an instant feedback on it. But that's the kind of stuff. If, if we find things where we have myths and we don't know, Right. Propose it and do it because we need. And if you hear someone repeating stuff that's not true, then we need to bring that back in. This reminds me in the um, late 80s, 90s, when I was taking care of in in home care. People with AIDS. And of course, AZT just didn't exist in life. 
Well, no, AZT. Is oh, it already did. Okay. But it it only prolonged for a little bit. It's yes. not what we have now. Not the cocktail. Not the cocktail. AZT was. I remember. And then there were all these other things. What none of the other nurses would talk about with their patients, or if they did, they kept it very quiet because you weren't supposed to. What about the couples? Right. What about the the I I took care of both um I'm gonna use this straight and homosexual couples, okay, gay couples. And how do you preserve that intimacy? How can you still um have sexual relations? You, everybody said you just don't, you're done. Well, that's not necessarily true. That's how people and say goodbye. Yeah. How do you, you know, no, you're not going to get it from kissing. No, you're not going to get it from this. At our AIDS camp, at least then, by the mid-90s, they were starting to talk about how can you still be involved. Intimacy, and intimacy doesn't always include sex. No. It's only one part. How can you do this safely? When your partner has AIDS, mm -hmm. so you know, how do you foster intimacy even when there's just one person who's just plain sick? And again, it doesn't have yeah. to be, you know, a sex. It can be just bits and pieces of that intimacy. But it's acknowledging that this is a couple, right? And then at some point, this person's not going to be here. Mm -hmm. And then when this person is not here, to acknowledge to the surviving partner from everybody else around them, it must be really hard to have had that taken from you because mm -hmm. you didn't just lose a spouse. You lost coming home to somebody. You lost waking up to somebody. Right. You lost right. having a hand to hold. You you lost all of that. And we, you lost, and you can do that with some humor, right? You lost somebody. You lost somebody that can't open the jars anymore. Right. You you lost somebody to bring in the mail. You lost the tall person. Oh, I right? think about that. I mean, I don't know how many other short people. I mean, short is five foot, less than five one person. So less than most people that you marry are taller. So I asked myself if my husband died. Would I rearrange the cabinets? How long before I rearrange what's here? What would I do? You know, and, you know, someone would say, get a step stool. Mm -hmm. I have a step stool, but there's something when he sees me struggling and he asks, you, want me you, to you want help? That's it. Want help? You know, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, I get the tongs out and I bring them down, but it's, I want to go back to what Ooh. we were saying before. So, Jill, it, in your experience, when someone who is feeling that guilt and re-questioning some things, what do you say to them that can lead them to peace besides... Besides saying, 
that's a totally normal question to ask. That is a normal feeling. Because they usually say, you know, should I have done something else? So should I have not given and should I have not given medicine? Should I have given medicine? Should I have waited? Is this hand signal that, you know, dad did, did that mean he didn't want any medicine or he did want medicine? You've heard. I know you've heard it all. I've heard it all. Yes. So what do you say? First of all, I say if you love them enough to be present for all of that, you weren't there to do harm. So you were doing with your intentions everything you could with the information that you had, with all the love that you had in that moment in time with the situation you were in. Any decision you made based on that was the right decision. And there's nothing to question about that because you were doing it out of the goodness of your heart, trying to do the right thing. You were listening to the input from the right people. You made the decisions you needed to make. And if they'd also done some talking about advanced directives with their loved one, then I will reflect back on that. This is what your loved one wanted to do. You were following what they wanted. It may not have been easy and you may not have wanted to do it. And other people may be questioning you, but you had the firsthand knowledge from your loved one Mm-hmm. as to what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Just like when someone decides they don't want any more chemo, I've had enough, I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And so that family unit, whatever it is, goes forward with that decision. And they make the best of it. And it gives them some quality of life back maybe. And they can laugh and enjoy themselves. It might shorten life. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end or afterwards, somebody comes through, multiple people come through and say, Why didn't you make them go to XYZ place? Why didn't you get the special X-ray zapper and, you know, try and make it a race? Why, why didn't you put all the oils and the, this and the, that, or do the, the monster green juice three times a day that would have saved them. Clearly it should have saved them. Right. Um, Because they're much better than the oncologists who've been doing this for years and years and years. And I say to them, you did exactly what they wanted and they got their quality of life. You did it because you were supposed to, and you did it the way you were supposed to. And anybody else who wants to question you, they can take that and go someplace else. You got to put those boundaries up Mm -hmm. and then reflect back to them. I was doing what they wanted and I would never do anything that they didn't. And that's all there is to it. And I'm at peace with that. You can't argue with I'm at peace with that. When you're talking to someone else and saying, you know, this is what we do in our family, or this is what we do. However, it's that questioning that wants an answer and there is no answer. And there just isn't. However, like you said, if you were there and you showed up, and you did the best you could while you were there with the information you had and all the judgments you needed to make quickly, right? right. then that's how it is. Exactly. exactly. Whether you're Whether in the, you're ER, the ER, ER or you have a planned death or it's some other kind or someone's calling you from ICU and your loved one is there with COVID, you make the decisions based on what you know about your loved one 
because you know your loved one best. If you're the one they decided was going to make decisions, that means they put trust into your hands. That's right. They're not easy decisions to make. I am not going to to lie about that. My, my second wife went 37 days without food or fluid. That was not easy, Mm-mm. but she wasn't uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I just put that post form on the wall and looked at it. It had her writing on it. And I kept hearing the back of my voice. If you put in a feeding tube, I will come back and haunt you. And wow. so I, I could laugh and we could joke about it in the house because you have to laugh at moments like that. Mm-hmm. Even if someone's in ICU right now that you love, you need to find some ways to laugh about the things that you remember about them and that they would be telling you about their experience so that you can lighten that mood and give your brain a little bit of a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, well, thank you, Jill. This has been a great little uh, chit chat today. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. thank you to Laura and Katie and Judy for being here. I know there's somebody else and I can't see you because sometimes we don't get to know who they are, but thank you for being here and we'll be back next Friday. And if anyone wants stuff brought up, um, leave us a note on one of the streams and we will get to it. We can only see notes on the stream for this specific page, but we will get the notes and we will bring it up next time. Absolutely. I'm going to repost on my page and that'll be wonderful. And, uh, Oh, I want to say one more thing. Oh, please, please, your book's out. No, no, this is not my book. I just got this. A a friend of mine who's um, in the middle of the grief process sent me this book. Oh. I don't know if you've read it. I have not. It is way worth reading. I've only skimmed parts of it. It's written by a rabbi, um, and it's got some fabulous stuff in it from what I've skimmed through, and I would – I would certainly say from this chair, I'd recommend it if you're looking for a book um, that sort of shares the grief process and um, all the other pieces that go with it. Can and it has some humor in it too. Yeah, it's oh, called good. The Beauty of What Remains. Wonderful. Okay. There we go. It's in. All right, guys. We'll see you guys next week. All right. Thanks, Bye. everybody. Bye-bye.